2 Corinthians, finishing up chapter 11. And we're going to span over the chapter break and go all the way to 12.10. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 30, going all the way through 12.10. I'd like to pray again. It just seems appropriate. Father, as we're coming into this uh, this sermon time, I just want to recognize that uh, that you are here with us and that you have every bit of control over this this service, this time we have a fellowship with one another, and we just want to um, kind of kind of like uh, Christine was talking about yesterday, we want to bring before you all of the control and expectations that we have in our lives and just kind of lay it at your feet and ask God that you would fill our empty hands with whatever it is that you would like for this time, for our lives, kind of going on the same motif that Riley was teaching on the journey where you're leading us, God. We want to give those things all over to you and recognize that they're really all yours anyway. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the uh, sermon series was Humble Brag, uh, Redeeming Boasting in the Christian Life. And uh, we talked a few times about that humble bragging is when somebody slightly veils the fact that they're boasting. Last time I taught, which was not this last Sunday, but the preceding one, I gave some examples of how people do that. Uh, Just in thinking, though, uh, since that week, I realized that we as believers can humble brag, and it's kind of a gross thing. And while defining what humble bragging is, I'd like to give you an example. Again, humble bragging is when you say something that's somewhat detestable about yourself, and you do so just only slightly veiling the fact that you're really promoting yourself, or promoting myself, because I do this too. The the example that pops into my head Uh, of things that I do within Christian circles in the sphere of sanctification is I can really humble brag about how God has changed my heart. I could say things like, oh, I used to love that movie, but now I can't watch it. Ugh, conviction. You know, and it's like, you're like telling people like, oh, yeah, it's a bummer. I can't watch that movie or listen to this music, but it's because I'm so pious, and that bothers me. (laughs) But how can I help it? For I am so pious. You know, so... the, the term the devil is in the, de- in the details, it, it's, it reminds me of the way sin just kind of creeps in to everything of our lives. It's this unpredictable contaminant that really can make its way in. We can always bring our best offering forward, but I guarantee you there's a contaminant within. And the reason why I think that's so important for us as Christians to remember is because we need to remember that God in His grace and love, has saved us from our sins, not from our past, from our sins. We continually propagate sin. And they may be less obvious, they may be veiled beneath the humble bragging, but we are still people who propagate sin. And there are consequences to those sins. Every sin is kind of like a barbed bomb that's just thrown and, and shrapnel and all sorts of fragments go and they they harm people. And that's the way our sins are. We propagate harm in our failures. 
that's not to make us feel like we're such horrible, horrible people. It's for us to remember that we are such blessed, blessed, graced people. On a daily basis, we are sinning against God, and that breaks His heart, but we sin against each other, and that breaks people's lives. The only hope we have is not in our own sanctification and our reformation, but the hope that we have is in Jesus Himself. And every single sermon that we teach, by the grace of God, will come to that conclusion. Whether believer or unbeliever alike, what we need is Jesus. And we can, we can come up with these five-point steps and these plans and these approaches, and we can write these books, and they can be helpful as long as they lead us to the party. The party is this, Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the gift, and he's the way to get there. So, pride, humble bragging, is alive in the life of the believer in its sinful form. And we learned from Paul over these last three weeks, finishing up today, of how one can actually boast in a way that honors God. How we can actually promote, because we, we, we hunger for promotion. We want to promote things. I remember the first time I saw Inception, I called all my friends from college that I hadn't seen for years. I'm like, oh man, you would really like this movie. I, yeah, Matt Abed from six years ago. Yeah, yeah, Matt. And so it's like we want to evangelize. We want to propagate. We want to promote. Uh, just this morning I was promoting my, uh, a good friend of mine that I really love. I'm like, oh, you need to know this person because they're so awesome. And we have a hunger for promotion. And... This is a way that we can actually promote. We can fulfill that desire and step into that design because we were designed to witness in, in a such a way that brings honor to God. So I wanted, I'd like to read our passage. We'll go through it. And uh, by God's grace, we'll learn something here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 through 12, 10. I'm reading out of the uh, New King James Version. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands." It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter, Press, or I'm sorry, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure." Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might de depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may, be, may rest upon me. 
Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the word of the Lord. The title of today's message is Boasting in Weakness. We've talked a little bit about boasting in Christ. We've talked a little bit about boasting in our sufferings. And here we're talking about boasting in our intrinsic weaknesses. There's, there's a lot of different ways that we can define weakness, but what I would like to focus on is um, experiential weakness. The, let, let me unpack what I mean by experiential weakness. I mean shortcomings because of your upbringing or your history. I would say, I would say uh, an example of weakness would be if... Um, if you didn't attend high school, you dropped out of high school, or you didn't attend college, an experiential weakness that when if you told somebody that in the future, it would, it would um, maybe skew for the negative the way people see you. Maybe you could see it as a lack of credentials. That's kind of the weakness that we're talking about. Of course, sinful struggles are weakness, and you can, you can apply that to this as well. But I think for the duration of this sermon, if you could see it more down the vein of experiential weakness, shortcomings in your history, it'll help you then to actually apply it to other forms of weakness, physical weakness, um, struggles with sin and conviction, things like that. But let's, let's kind of keep on that main avenue. Now, Paul is in the midst of of his promotion of himself. He was forced into it. Two weeks ago, we talked about how reluctant he was, he was to do so. Last week, we talked about his sufferings, the various persecutions. This week, we're talking about his weaknesses and also um, a vision that he has. And he actually puts that underneath the umbrella of a weakness. We'll see why that is in just a second. Paul is ironically undermining the way people were promoting themselves in the first century. One thing that they would first do is they would come out and they would explain who they are, and they would begin lauding their own credentials. That would be the place where Paul comes out and says, I don't want to boast. I don't want to laud my credentials. So that's, that's his replacement for that. For the introduction of saying, this is who I am and let me tell you my credentials, Paul's replaced that with a section where he says, I really, really, really don't want to talk to you guys about my credentials. That's his version of it. And that would be really uh, verses 16 through 21 of chapter 11. Verses 22 through 29, what we studied last week, are kind of Paul's replacement for accolades. People would come and they would say, hey, you know, I was, I was given this award and I was given this education and I studied under this leader. Paul has substituted that with saying, I was lashed and whipped by this guy, and uh, let's see, I was shipwrecked three times, and I was imprisoned, and I was constantly in danger of being robbed. And he says that these are, he's presenting these as his credentials, showing his preparation for ministry. Now, another thing that people would do is they would self-promote their strengths, We've all gotten emails, usually in the business place, where somebody's saying, "Hey, you know, your website could really use uh, could really use an update. This is what we've done. Have a look at some of the websites we've done. We're really good at this." 
or you're not getting enough promotion for your job. So let me show you how we market things for a simple price of this per month, and they tell you their strengths. Paul replaces that with saying, I'm going to talk about my weaknesses. Here's a really important fact. So I, I'd like you guys to not permit that this be lost in the minutiae. This is kind of the important point of this. Paul is not merely being ironic. He's not merely being ironic. He's not just coming in the face of people who, who do things that are kind of icky and then mimicking them but doing them in a good way. That's not just what he's doing. He claims that the things that he's doing are, are actually valid. And that's what this passage is about. He says, I, therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses. It's not merely because he's trying to mimic them and make fun of them and be ironic. He's saying because there is a reason why a believer might boast in their weaknesses. It's not just, it's not just mystic nonsense babble. He's not just being ironic. He really says believers should recognize their weaknesses and they should boast in them. The first weakness he gives is... Uh, is introduced with this. The God and the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. Um, that's not really like saying, I swear I'm telling the truth. It's just really common when, when people were promoting themselves, they would say, you know, so-and-so is my witness, so-and-so is my witness. It's very common for, in Hebrew culture, for Jewish people to say, um, you know, God who is forever blessed is my witness. So Paul is beginning his boast in verse 31. And this is the account he wants to give uh, that he represents as kind of the or not represents, he presents it as the, uh, the epitome of his weakness. Verses 32 and 33. In Damascus, the governor under Eretus the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. If you guys are curious of where, uh, where this is found, there, there's actually a, an account of it in Luke's book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Paul sees this as a very, very, maybe even shameful example of weakness. It's really not that embarrassing. But look, I want to unpack why it's something that he says is the epitome of his weakness. I think in order to do that, we really have to put ourselves in the mindset of Paul. Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, this Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He was, he had all of the credentials. He really represented everything that the Corinthians wanted way back when, before he was a Christian, before he knew God. He had all of the accolades and merits to be a person who would impress other people, to be a person of, of great renown. He even, had, uh, he even had letters of recommendation. Remember, earlier on in the book of 2 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, like, look, I came to you guys without letters of recommendation, and you guys are you know, giving me a hard time about it. They, they wanted things like that, letters from an authority. When Paul, the apostle, was Saul of Tarsus, he was on his way to persecute Christians with letters of recommendation in his back pocket. And those letters told him that he could do whatever it takes to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem in chains so that way they could be tried for blasphemy. Paul had everything he needed. Not just letters of recommendation, but he also was 
had these commendations of his own history and education and merit, he also came with a bunch of people. He came with strength. And where was he going? He was on the road to Damascus. Luke's account of this says that Paul was still breathing threats against the way. He was, his very existence, his life, was the fact that he wanted to persecute Christians. This is the manner in which he was walking to the city of Damascus. This is in Acts chapter 9, by the way. And it's there where Jesus appears to him, knocks him off of his horse, and Saul goes blind. Um... Put yourself in, in, in Saul of Tarsus's shoes. This is the very person who thinks is evil, and yet he's, he's been knocked off of his horse by this person who's supposed to be dead. I know the Christians say that he rose from the dead, but he's supposed to be dead, and yet he shows up with bright lights around him. And this apparent charlatan, Jesus Christ, is yet appearing now in purity and in power and has knocked Paul, or excuse me, Saul, off of all of his pomp. Off of his high horse, if you will. Literally and figuratively. Um, it, it must have been terribly embarrassing, terribly shocking. And yet, in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, around verse 15, Paul the Apostle says in retrospect, that happened to him out of the grace of God. This was a very good thing. Now Saul embraces this Jesus who says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul goes into Damascus. He continues all the way, and now he's in the city walls of Damascus. And he goes down the street that's called Straight, and he meets this Christian named Ananias who is told to expect Saul to come. And Ananias welcomes him in. Saul has been fasting from food and water for several days, and so now he's, he's very weak. And Ananias prays over him, and these things fall out of Saul's eyes that are like scales, and Saul can see again. This has been a crazy experience for a guy who just a few days ago had all of the confidence and merit in the world to now be on the floor of this random guy's house being prayed over in the name of this apparent charlatan and receiving healing and blessing from this nobody. Put yourself in Saul's shoes. And so now he's in Damascus. His plan is, I'm gonna, I was going to persecute all of these Christians. That's what I was supposed to do here. Uh, what do I do now? Because I'm, I'm definitely not going to do that again. What he does, this, is, this says so in, in Acts chapter 9, is he goes to the synagogue. Instead of going to find the Christians, he goes to find the non-Christians. He goes into the synagogue and he tells the Jewish people in the synagogue, I'm going to prove to you that this Jesus is the Son of God. It's Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, like, like in the Catechism, that's, that's bearing this eternal name of Jesus Christ. He's, he's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And so what ends up happening is some people don't like that. And so Saul is, is held up in, in somebody's house, and uh, just like it says here in 2 Corinthians 11, there was a garrison set up to guard the city gates so they want to take Saul in and capture him. 
And so the way they do it is they block the exit, just like that they do in all the action movies, right? They block all the exits so he can't get out. And so what Saul has to do is get inside of a basket and be lowered through a window, down this wall, and escape in the middle of the night. Just a matter of days, he went from high horse, credentials, merit, still breathing threats, sure as everything that he was right, and now he's sneaking out in the, in the middle of darkness in a basket, from horse to basket in just a matter of days, to certainty to blindness to revelation in just a matter of days. Putting yourselves putting yourselves in Saul's shoes, you can understand why this was something that really hit him hard. This is the experience of his life that was really from top to bottom. And it happened to him very, very quickly. Some, some would even say that in this passage that uh, Saul is, or now Apostle Paul is kind of what he's taking, that Paul is... Um, making a parody of the highest honor uh, in the military in the first century, which was called, in Latin, the Corona Moralis. And that, that was a crown made out of a precious metal, usually gold, and it, it looked like a wall. It had, it had brick engravings on it and pillars. And it was a crown that was given to the very first soldier to storm a city during a time of, of, of capture. When they were trying to capture a city, the very first soldier who would storm the wall and go up it would be given this great honor, and it was it was the highest honor that um, that a, a mere soldier could be awarded in a time of battle. And and maybe maybe Paul is kind of making a parody of that here. He says, you know, some people have been given this this great award for going up a wall, and my greatest weakness was a time when I was lowered through a window down a wall. And may, maybe he is saying that. It seems that that is Paul's only example of weakness that he gives in the section where he's talking about weakness. Um, it seems that way, but I, I would contend that it's not. This next part is contextually what is needed in order for him to explain one more weakness. So he, again, he expresses his, re, uh, his reluctance to boast. He says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. That's kind of like him saying, man, I really hate doing this. But the next thing I'll talk to you guys about is, is visions. Another thing that people would do at this time, these teachers, they would come and say, Behold, the Lord has told me. And they, they look like these amazing gurus. And, and Saul's like, okay, or I got I to gotta get the monikers right. Now Paul is saying, okay, these people come in and they boast about their visions that God has given them. You guys want to know that I have visions? I do. And just sidebar, Really, every, every critique the Corinthians have given Paul, his answer has kind of been like, yeah, you know what, you think I don't do that? I actually do, quite a bit. <laughs> like, they, you remember they're, they're abusing tongues in 1 Corinthians, and he goes, you know what, I'm glad I speak in tongues more than all of you guys. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, so this is not a, a thing that you don't do. And so he's talking about here the visions, and he's, he's going to, in a very strange way, talk about a vision that he's had. And he does it by saying, I know a guy. And, it, and it's, it's kind of confusing, because even um, in verse 5, it makes it even 
even more muddled by saying, of such a one, such a guy, I'll boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except for under my infirmities. And so it's like, okay, he's talking about somebody else, right? He's probably not. He's probably talking about this experience that belongs to him personally, but because of this narrative that we'll get into in just a second, he is so personally against talking about this to his own credit that he has to cover it up by you know, pushing it off on, on, on a guy. And it's not him lying, because it is clear in here that he's talking about himself, but it's only as clear as muddy water can be. Um, and this is his story. Fourteen years ago, whether in body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up into the third heaven. Okay, so this is 14 years ago. Some people say that this happened to Paul when he was stoned outside of Lystra uh, because he almost died. And so some people are saying, well, maybe uh, Paul was stoned and he was killed and kind of was led into the afterlife before his life was returned to his body. That time doesn't seem to line up with his date stamp 14 years ago. Uh, but he was caught up into the third heaven. And just really quickly, third heaven is supposed to be a representation of, of God's kingdom. The first heaven would be uh, our sky, what's within the earth's atmosphere. In, in Gen Genesis 1, it talks about how the birds fly in heaven. Uh, the, second, the second heaven would be outside of our atmosphere, in, into, the, you know, into the cosmos. So you you know, the planets, the stars, all those sorts of things. The third heaven is supposed to be a representation beyond those two spheres. Um, so he's saying that, that God's kingdom is not in the clouds. God's kingdom is also not in outer space. It's beyond that. So that's what the, that numeration third means. And so, again, in verse 3, he's saying, I really don't know if this was in the body or out of the body. Not really sure why that's super important to this. It's just probably a detail that Paul's wondered about for over the course of 14 years. Um, and he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Verse 4 is, again, Paul substituting something that these teachers would do for actually the right way to go about it. Remember the guy, the guru, the, the guy who comes in and says, Behold, I have had a vision from the Lord. What is that followed up with? And this is what he says. Paul says, yeah, I, I know a guy. Don't know if it was his body or not. He went, like God brought him up into paradise and got to see all these sorts of things. Really? What did he see? What did he hear? Can't even tell you. And, and Saul, or Paul is, is saying here that this is the appropriate way to treat things that are so high and heavily. These, these heavenly things are not opportunities for us to really show how pious and spiritual we are, that's a mistreatment of something that's way too high for men to utter. And then in verse 5, he says, look, I, I, can, I can, that's as much as I can do. Because I can tell you that there was a guy who went to heaven. Um, I'm not going to say I went to heaven. I'm not going to say this is the visions that I have. I'll say I know a guy. And I'll boast on the fact that I'm familiar with this person. And he said, um, but what I will actually boast about is in my weakness. Verse 6, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me to be. Another statement of reluctance. Saying, I really don't want to do this, primarily because I don't want you guys to see me through these high holiness lenses. I just want you guys to recognize that I'm, 
I'm just like you. I'm, I'm just a sinner that was saved by grace. And then verse 7 is really, really why I think that Paul, and, and many people agree, that Paul is actually talking about himself having this vision. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. So he was, he was talking about a one, right? Some dude, some random guy. But he, he segues into, and so that way it wouldn't become so heavily arrogant because I've had so many visions, um, this happened to me. So I, it really does seem like Paul is owning this vision as something that he's experienced. And here's the weakness. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Thorn in the flesh is actually um, is, is found in, in the Old Testament. I, I've written down here at least one place. In Numbers 33, uh, God talks about, tells the people that if they don't drive out the inhabitants of the land, they're going to be a constant annoyance to you, like a thorn in the side. So that's, uh, that's Paul utilizing some cultural uh, imagery that is uh, not just his own. Okay, and he says, this is a messenger of Satan to buffet me. So this is, this is not something that, uh, that has come to, to Paul by happenstance. This is something that that the enemy, that the devil has brought to him, and it says to buffet me. That's to, to beat you up. To be buffeted is, is not really a verb that we use, but I, um, I've heard Justin explain it as like going rounds with the devil, like taking hits, taking blows. And he says, every time I experience something from this thorn in the side, it reminds me of being punched in the face by Satan himself. And why was this given to Saul, given to Paul? lest I be exalted above measure. This is to keep him humble, to keep him in his place. To remind him, yes, you're an apostle of Christ. Yes, you've had visions. Yes, you apparently speak in tongues more than the entire Corinthian church. But you have this thorn in the side to remind you that you are susceptible to weakness, to attacks from Satan. You are still just a man, and you still depend on me, Jesus Christ, for your sanctification. Much like the introduction I gave, we all still depend on Jesus today to save us from our current sins. And Paul says that this thorn was permitted to be given to me so that way I wouldn't, I wouldn't become too arrogant. And so, so Paul hasn't just accepted this thing, at least not initially. We don't, we're not sure what it is. A, a lot of people think it was a physical ailment because we see within the margins of Paul's epistles that he's had a, he has physical problems, maybe even with his eyes, according to the book of Galatians, or implied in Galatians. So he didn't just accept this. He prayed about it. He prayed that God would remove it from him. This is verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Don't think that we're only permitted to pray for the same thing three times, right? Jesus says, keep knocking. And uh, he talks about the persistent widow, that we continue to pray for the same things. The reason Paul stopped after three times is not because he realized, I've done it three strikes, you're out. It's because after the third time, an answer was given to him by Jesus Christ. And he stopped asking after that because he was settled. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul was praying to Jesus. Jesus, who is really Paul's 
only wholehearted companion through all of his time being knocked off the horse to his eventual beheading. Jesus was his only companion through this entire thing. And Paul had friends, and Paul had confidants, some who stuck with him for a very long time, but Jesus was Paul's very, very present and very close companion. And this was the comfort that Jesus offered him. Although I can remove this from you, I won't, because when you have these weaknesses, my strength is made perfect. Now, is Jesus doing the mystical thing, where he says something that's just weird and ironic and is so, so strange that it must be wise? Well, of course not. Jesus isn't like that. Um, Paul unpacks it with two therefores in the second part of verse 9 and uh, in verse 10. Therefore, I most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because according to Jesus, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, I'm really glad to tell you how weak I am because according to Jesus, those are the places where he works the most. This is not just weird mysticism. I would say the best way to understand the way this, uh, this functions in the life of the believer is just to think numerically. Um, or to, there, there's a principle called Archimedes' principle. Are you guys familiar with that? Ben, are you? Ben, can, displacement, exactly. Yeah, can, do you want to try to explain it to us so, so I don't look ridiculous to you when I try to explain it in my words? Yeah, yeah, it's a displacement. Effectively, think think of this. Um, this is an application of Archimedes' principle, but not the declaration of it. There's nothing in the world that is actually empty. Okay, so whenever whenever there's an open space, it will be filled because Archimedes' principle describes liquids and gases. It will be filled because of a displacement. So if you have um, if you have an empty glass. It is full of whatever particles are in the air. It's not necessarily just pure oxygen, but it's full. Now, if you pour water into it, not only is the liquid taking the space within the glass, but the gas that was used to be in that glass is now leaving and popping out over the top. It's the application of Archimedes' principle, which is why you have to poke a hole in those water jugs in order for water to come out of them. You need to let oxygen in, so that way the pressure of the gas inside the jug will push down the water and it'll come out of the spout. That's why if you don't poke a hole in the glass, you'll only get trickles of water unless you squeeze it. It's, I, I, this is something that has always fascinated me. It's probably the only thing that stuck with me from eighth grade science. Um, but that's, that's what Paul is saying Jesus' work and grace in our life is like. If there's no emptiness within you, then there's no space for Jesus to fill. Um, I, I, I brought a visual illustration just to explain this because I knew that I, I would not explain it fully enough. And I don't usually like to do these because they can sometimes be distracting, but if they're clarifying, then maybe it's helpful. If you can give me a second, I'm just going to prepare it. Hang on. For anybody listening in the recording, I just brought out a cardboard cutout of Kiefer Sutherland riding a stegosaurus. I actually didn't. Um, 
Actually, can somebody maybe record this? Maybe we can post it with the sermon, and maybe that'll be helpful. So it's not just distracting in the recording. Oh, thank you. I collected these stones from outside, and the only thing that popped into my head is the part in, uh, you know, the bird's song, There's a Season, Turn, 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 from Ecclesiastes. There's a part where <laughs> they're like, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. And my critique was always, when? When is the time to gather stones? Apparently it's now, because I gathered stones. Um, I want you guys to think of, of your lives categorically, as these cups, okay? And uh, these, these represent a few, different, a few different categories. So maybe, maybe one represents talent. Uh, maybe one represents relevance, like cultural relevance. Maybe one represents your, your education. All right, maybe I'll, I'll put them behind the glasses so you can still see the, the glasses. Maybe one of them uh, represents morality. And maybe one of them represents social status. And these are qualities in our lives that we strive for in order to matter in this world. Right? And may, we all have these, these cups in our lives. And of course, there are all sorts of different other categories. But we fill these cups with, um, with accolades. So talent. Maybe you're a public speaker. Or um, as far as relevance goes, maybe you know all the popular hashtags that are trending on Twitter, and um, maybe you have uh, a, a really cool top knot. And <laughs> education, maybe, uh, maybe you went to MIT, maybe you went to Harvard, maybe you've done a lot of personal studying. Morality, maybe you've never gotten a parking ticket. Maybe you always wait for the, uh, the white hand to cross the street. Maybe you've never stolen anything, or the times that you have, you went back and paid for it. Morality, morality. Social status. Maybe you're from the rich crowd. Or um, maybe you're one of the cool kids in school. And for some reason, people think that you're important. When it, when it comes to... to our lives, we use these things. We use these things to try to, to, to receive promotion and to show that we're worth a darn. And I, I remember, before I really understood the way things work in Christ, I wanted to be the smartest, most relevant, most um, talented Christian there ever was. I, I remember... I was, I was just having one of those sit and things, and I was talking to God, and I was like, you know, God, I really hope one day I could become a very famous musician. And I had this weird fantasy, like I, I, like, I would love to be followed by somebody who wants to interview me for my music and me to say, well, I'm on my way to church. Come join me in church, and we can talk afterwards. <laughs> and my, my idea was like, like, hey, you know what? If this really smart person believes in God, then maybe... Maybe um, his intellectual prowess is, is something that proves the truth of God. You know, like, Matt Abed, he's that rock star guy. He's very culturally relevant, and he believes in Jesus. Maybe there's something to this after all, or maybe he's got the talent. Um, when you become a Christian, 
God gives you his strength. Okay? I was going to push this illustration further and say, Jesus is the living water. But I didn't want to get to Sunday school. Um, and, and God uses all these things. Okay? So he applies, he applies his strength and he fills you up. And he makes up for your lackings. And he fills you up to overflow, but I don't want to make a mess. But do you see how these accolades that are within the cup remove God's strength from it? Displacement. Archimedes' principle. If there's something in the cup, then there's less water that can go in. If there's something in the cup, there's less of God's strength to provide. I think about Paul. He came to Corinth, and he made this idea, I'm not going to be eloquent. I'm not going to talk about smart things. I'm just going to talk about Jesus who is crucified. That's all God's strength. Or I think about, um, I think about Pastor Chuck, who's kind of a guy who really uh, helps the Calvary Chapel movement you know, preach the gospel to many people. It was at the time of the hippies. They didn't wear shoes. They had long hair. And he wore suits every time he preached. And he had no hair. And there was nothing cool about him. But he said, you know, if these hippies want to come in, why don't, we just, uh, why don't we take out the carpet so they can walk in without their shoes and they can hear the gospel? Completely irrelevant to the culture. And yet the Holy Spirit worked. I think about the education of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus preached the gospel, they said, how does he know these things having never learned and never, never studied? I think about the, the majority of the apostles that we have are fishermen, tradesmen, poor education. Um, I think about the woman in Samaria who went out to get water in midday, which was the time when nobody got water, which is probably why she did that, because no one liked her. And people talked about her being a sinner and that she's had four husbands and the one she's currently living with is not even her husband. And yet that woman, when she met Jesus, led to the, uh, the revival of a city. Do you see how Jesus' strength is made perfect in our weaknesses? And Paul's recommendation is that not only will he boast in his empty glasses, but he recommends that we should as well. And the reason, the reason why I would like us to think about our experiential weaknesses is because those are the ones that really hang on to us. How is that this person can talk to us about the Lord having never studied? These are the ones that really matter to other people. How is it that this person can lead to a revival within the church even though he's got no hair and he wears suits to church and he's got a very slow voice? And people recognize that there's a dissonance between the person and the fruit of their work in the Lord. And it makes people very confused. This is how God likes to work. He likes to use empty vessels. And the reason why we can boast in our weaknesses is because we all have empty vessels. Different categories of our lives are empty. We bring nothing to the table. And normally what we do is we keep them out of sight. If, if we're undereducated according to the world standard, then we just don't talk about education. But what, what Paul recommends, and what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to, to do today, wants to recommend, is that we would present these sorts of things. Now, I, I am 
by God's grace, honored to serve this church. And there are some things, um, you know, that I honestly bring to the table. I went to a Bible college, unaccredited, so we'll just put one stone. Um, I'm comfortable speaking in front of people, and I used to do music, so I can serve in ministry, uh, in worship ministry. Just say two small stones. God can still use those things. Those things are not bad. God wants to elevate our strengths, but I want to talk to you guys about my morality or lack thereof. Sorry, it's kind of hard to talk about because it really is a personal thing. My empty glass is morality. I grew up knowing how to lie and how to cheat, and I was so proud of getting away with lying. I loved being in the face of an accuser who knew exactly what I did and being able to weasel my way out of it. Um, I know, not knew, but I know how to get what I want. And I know that I have the ability to hurt anybody and make the sacrifices necessary to get what I want. All morality aside. I know how to do that. And I can't blame that on the way that I was raised, and I can't blame that on my surroundings. It's something about me. This is my glass that is empty. I bring nothing to the table of morality. And this morning, I want to boast in that. I want to boast that I'm, in a, I'm a completely amoral person because by God's grace, I think I've not really heavily hurt any of you guys. And I, and I know I probably have made mistakes that have harmed you guys, and I, I would love you to tell me about it, please, because I love you. But I, I boast in the fact that I've, um, by God's grace, I've, I've thus far not, never stolen from the church. I've never cheated on my wife. I've not gone up here and just lied to you guys. I've, I've done that in ministry before. I have. I had to step down from preaching ministry in the first church where I served because I was involved with sin in, in secret, and nobody knew about it. But by God's grace, I've, n- I've not done that here. But I boast that that's not because of me. My glass is empty. I'm not a moral person. I'm not an honest person. I'm not a considerate person that cares about other people. I care about myself. I'm very crafty and very deceitful. Yet by God's grace... By his strength, for no reason whatsoever other than God himself, he's filled up my cup. And I just want to encourage you guys, allow God to sift through your lives the hurtful places, the places where your cup is entirely empty and unimpressive and even shameful. Find those places and boast in your weakness, because in Christ you will find that he's, he's put something in that glass. When you tell people, like, I'm, I'm really stupid by God's grace. Yeah, that's not nice. That's right. <laughs> by God's grace, some people will say, I've never thought that about you. And it's not be, because you've really gotten away with hiding who you are. It's because God's put water in your glass. Because Archimedes' principle, displacement, this is the way God works. 
And, and it's true that these places where we do have strengths, strengths of lying and strengths of yucky things, we can remove those things and there will be more room for God's strength to come in. Don't, you don't have to be ashamed of your strengths, but don't boast in them. Boast in your empty glasses because those are the places where you're 100% full in God's strength. And so um, that's, that's about it. That's, that's what I have to bring to you guys today. And I, and I want us to pray. And I just want to... I just... Uh, I want to encourage us that these are the places where we really can brag. These are the places that really matter because these are the places where God has filled up an empty cup, an empty glass. Let's pray. Lord, we come to the table with accolades, and that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to live lives where we only do things to uh, bring up things that will count against us. We don't have to not go to a good school. That's not, that's not really what you are telling us to do. We don't have to live a life of asceticism where we harm ourselves to, to prove our piety. That's the opposite of what you want us to do. But you welcome us to examine the places in our lives where in our, our natural selves we have empty cups, empty glasses. And you want to fill those places because you are a God of boundless grace. Where we lack in education, you are the only wise king in revelation. Where we lack in relevance, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Where we lack in morality, you are the only one who is good, that is God. You have strength, you have grace to give us. And we pray that we would come before you and open up those glasses to you, allow you to fill them, that we can be examples of how you, God, work. Not how well we can do things, but how you can work. Thank you, God, that I am weak in many ways. Talking about morality is the one weakness that I've shared today. It's not my only one. And I boast in that because by your grace, you've made me a moral person. And I know that's all for the time being. We can, we can fail. We can fall short. By, you know, heaven forbid that, you know, tomorrow this testimony that you've built can topple down. And yet the fact still remains that you create life where there is only dead and dry bones. We thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.